right face of the big tree is based on the story of Judges of Gideon, uh, who needs a lot of faith to take on an army of 100,000 men with just 300. Uh, but they were encamped along the hills, they burst into light and conquered the, the army in the vales below. An amazing story. We're going to be looking at a lot of stories in Judges tonight. This is the fourth message uh, in our er uh, series on um, biblical allegories. Uh, we started out talking about blindness, leprosy, and the lamb as pictures of the, um, our spiritual state, blindness and leprosy. And the lamb, of course, is the cure, the blood of the lamb. Uh, then we talked about Jacob, an extraordinary character in the Bible, one worth studying, uh, who had a, a tumultuous life that ended finally in God getting all the glory. And then last week, we, oh, yeah, two weeks ago, we talked about Amalek uh, and the war against Amalek and how important it is to continue that war and not make the, make the terrible mistake that poor old King Saul made. Uh, but be persistent in our war against Amalek. Tonight we're looking at the helmet of salvation and it kind of summarizes everything we've talked about up to this point. We've got a long way to go. I've got to be out of here at eight o'clock. We don't pick my daughter up until it's 11. She's flying in from Morocco of all places. And uh, the train gets in at 9.15, so I think I'll just make it. Um, and I've got a friend here from Washington, D.C. Insisted that he's tired and he wants to be out in here by eight o'clock. I won't tell you his name. Um, we're going to begin by reading Ephesians chapter 6, but let's start by praying. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Lord, for your unending grace, your power, your love. Bless this word tonight. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6 from verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself, in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. That verse is highly appropriate for the time we live in right now in this country, around the world, but in this country in particular. Darkness is descending. Just remind you, behind all of this is a baleful evil spirit, the devil himself and his legions, and they are the ones who are warring against us. Wherefore, take unto the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Don't run. Don't hide. Don't cower. Don't whimper. Don't wonder what's happening to me. Stand. And accept your position in the Lord, and walk in His power. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with perseverance and supplication for all saints. We began this exploration of biblical allegories by noting that all humans are born suffering from leprosy and blindness. I've already referenced that allegorical conditions in Scripture that depict our corrupt inner nature and inability to know the truth. We're blind to the truth. Inherited after the downfall of Adam and Eve. The only cure, the only cure, there's no other, is the atonement offered by the sacrificial Lamb of God. But glorious as it is, and the but there is not intended to make that any lesser, but it's not the whole story. God's sacrifice on our behalf initially delivers us only from the penalty for our sinfulness. This was the powerful work of Calvary. But there's another chapter that we have to be aware of and walk in. And that is, it's left to us to discover the power of the resurrection. This is what Paul meant when he wrote and said, work out your salvation. We work out our salvation by discovering who we are what is available to us, and then walking in it. Right. Acting the way God wants us to act as he works in us. We must continue to do this. It's his work that produces the desire and the effort to obey him. Our work is to continue the struggle to overcome a sin nature that has crippled, uh, that, sorry, has been crippled, has been crippled on Calvary, but not totally destroyed. I'm going to see that again and again in tonight's message. The struggle lasts a lifetime and is essential to build our spiritual strength and Christian character. If this phase of our Christian ex experience is as instant and complete as our deliverance from the penalty for sin, we would learn nothing about our weakness, about our depravity, and nothing about the power of God. Right. And having learned nothing, we would be able to teach nothing to those who come after us. My brothers and sisters, if you've been tried in this life, yeah. if you walked in dark places, if you've had opposition, if you've come against things where you feel, I just can't go on, that's part of your training. Because in that moment, God wants you to discover Him and His power and His ability. That's why we have these trials. Jacob's life experiences still teach us today, as we discovered in that message. Just as Amalek's story reminds us that we must be unrelenting in our war against our old nature. Our old nature, the Bible calls it the flesh, and the principalities and powers we read about in a moment are combined against us in this war. In the Old Testament, warfare is a notable ex uh, uh, aspect of the experience of God's people from the moment they leave Egypt. And it doesn't end when they en enter the promised land of milk and honey. Every time I read that name, I feel a twinge of amusement. You just put yourself back in their, their uh, shoes. They leave slavery in Egypt 
And they told they're on their way to the promised land of milk and honey. What do you think the picture was in their mind? The last thing they expected is that when they finally got there, it would be a land full of enemies, many of whom were giants, and they had to fight for every single inch of the land that was theirs. And that's the whole point of the Christian life. If you will fight in God's strength, if you will understand who you are in God, if you will devour this word and understand what's yours, then your fight in the promised land will bring you to the place where you taste constantly of his milk and his honey. And it's good. The war intensifies in the promised land. Sorry, I, I'm a little emotional. It's been a, a hurricane two days for me. But God is good. Amen. The war intensifies in the promised land. There are a lot more enemies and some of them are giants. And it's no surprise. God doesn't deliver us, listen very carefully, God does not deliver us from lives of sin and futility so that we can pursue our personal aims and ambitions to satisfy our own desires. We are saved for one reason, to serve Him. Amen. Let's turn to 1 Samuel 15 and look at, just remind ourselves what He said to King Saul. Now we've, we've talked about Saul in the past. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 15. By the way, um, I've mentioned before two of the most important chapters you should be very familiar with you should master 1st Samuel 15 and Psalm 51 if you understand what God is saying to us in those two chapters you will be a long way down the road to live a victorious Christian life 1st uh, Samuel 15 we read about Saul who is given a task and does 90% of what God asks of him and feels that's enough and when he's confronted by God, uh, he doesn't admit his fault. He, he insists, but I've done everything you told me to do. And God finally takes everything away from him. On the other side of the scale, we have King David, who is a horrible, awful, terrible sinner. Did despicable, unbelievable things. And God calls him a man of his own heart. Because your relationship with God does not depend on your performance. It depends on your surrender to Him. Which is what David figured out. So here in uh, 1 Samuel 15, after uh, Saul has been confronted with his, his refusal to acknowledge his sin, this is what Samuel says to him in verse 17. When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And our Lord, the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them that they might be consumed. He's discovered that the Amalekites are a representation of the sin in our lives, the, our fleshly carnal nature. Fight them, God said, wipe it out. And Saul said, well, I did 90%. That's good enough. Look at verse 19. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? If I might paraphrase that, paraphrase that, 
God is saying to Saul and to us, I didn't save you from sin and destruction. I didn't die for you on the cross so that you could go and do your own thing with the rest of your life. I died for you. I paid a tremendous price for you so that you would obey me. And admit it when you mess up. That's the lesson every one of us needs to learn. The way God keeps us close to him is to confront us with challenges that we cannot overcome without his help. Let me say that again. The way God keeps us close to him is to confront us with challenges that we cannot overcome without his help. If we stick close to God and draw on his strength, victory is assured. And it's often surprisingly easy. Takes just a little prayer, a little humility, a little dependence on God. If we backslide, our sins and the problems they bring will be a constant source of discouragement and defeat. If you read Joshua and Judges, the whole story is laid out there. Let's look at some representative passages in Judges 13. Oh, we'll start with Judges 1, 19. Now, they entered the promised land and God gave them a task. The, the commission from God was wipe out everybody there. It's your land. They're in there. Take care of, take them all out. And the Lord was with Judah, verse 19, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Uh, look at Drop down to verse 21. We've got a long way to go, so I'm going to skim this. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Uh, verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheen and her towns, nor Tanakh and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ibleam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites who dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to dispute and did not utterly drive them out. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. Verse 30. Neither did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kishon. And there's a list of the inhabitants. Verse 31. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Go down to 33. Neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bethshemen. And verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. A summary of the consequences, Judges chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum. By the way, you've got your notes. They've got all the scriptures in there uh, for you to study later if you like. Uh, I made you go up out of Egypt, and I brought you into the land which I swore unto your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of the land. Don't make any agreements. Don't compromise with sin. You shall throw down the altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said to you, I will not drive them out. From before you, but they shall be as thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare unto you. You wonder why you've got problems in your life? It's because you don't deal with your sin. And it will come back and haunt you, trip you up constantly. So 
sell out to God and it's a lot easier. Listen, trials will come. Doesn't matter how sold out to God you are, trials will come. But it's so much easier to deal with them if there's no sin in your life, or at least you're repentant about your sin. At least you're not enjoying your sin. Verse 4, and it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. Of course they wept because God was thanking them. But it was so unnecessary. And you see again and again, they don't do what they're told. When they get into trouble, they cry. Lord, why is this happening to us? Uh... God's angry response to constant backsliding is found in Judges chapter 10, verses 10 to 14. I'm sorry for the people in the back trying to keep up with me, God bless you. Um, chapter 10, verse 10 to 14. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam, uh, Baal, the Lord of the flies. Uh, the local God there. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, etc., etc., uh, from all the people? He gives a list there. Verse 13, Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go, and this next verse is devastating. Go and cry unto the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of trouble. Do you understand what you do when you toy with sin? What you are when you are half-hearted in your submission to God, when you don't walk with God the way He wants you to, when He gives you everything you need and you still mess up. Eventually, God will say to you, "Okay, you like that stuff you're doing. See if that will help you in your time of trouble. See if that will be your strength when everything falls around you." But the opposite is true. When you are in a great time of trouble, when everything goes wrong, there is no greater joy than to rest in God and find Him there for you and His strength and His comfort. Also note the folly of making promises to God to secure His deliverance from the consequences of our disobedience. A better response is repentance and faith. I'm not going to read the scripture in Judges. I'm going to tell you the story for sake of time. Uh, it's a wonderful story about a man who had a terrible start in life. He was the son of a harlot. He was an outcast. And yet he applied himself. He worked hard. He became a mighty warrior. Eventually he landed up as king of Israel, or at least the leader of Israel. And then he had the task to go and fight some enemies. And he did a very, very foolish thing. He prayed for God's help. And then he made a dumb promise. And that's a temptation for Christians, especially when we haven't been doing right. And we now recommit to God. And we foolishly say things like, God, I promise you, if you get me through this, I will do X, Y, and Z. And you won't. And that promise to God gets you into a lot of trouble. What happened here, the, the, uh, this great man said, God, if you give me the victory, the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home, I'll sacrifice to you. It was a totally unnecessary promise. God was going to give him the victory if he just trusted God. And he gets home, and the first thing out of his house is his daughter, who 
who he loves, his only child. And he says, bless my daughter. Oh, this troubles me, he says. And she says, good, God, you go. Say, will you go keep your promise to God? To sum up, spiritual warfare is an inescapable feature of the Christian life. Our salvation is much more, much more than an escape from punishment and a ticket to heaven. Lord, help those Christians in happy, clappy churches who think that's it. They are so misled. It's an invasion. Our salvation is an invasion by our creator of the entire human being. He's not satisfied with half of you. He's not satisfied with two quarters of you. He's not satisfied with 99% of you. He's only satisfied when he's got 100% of you. Our salvation sparks a radical transformation where all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And all the old things become our enemies, as they should. We trace our new ancestry to a new father, through a new birth that makes us citizens of a new kingdom. John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a whole new birth, whole new life, whole new experience. In Colossians 1, 13, God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. We no longer belong to this world. We are now under the rule of the mightiest force in the universe and it is your disposal to do walk with him he loves you with an everlasting love and his power is untouchable our new birth makes us sing a new song psalm 40 and adds much more ezekiel 36 26 to 28 listen to what he says this is your gift my gift from our heavenly father a new heart also i will give you and a new spirit will i put within you and i will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and i will give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes you shall keep my judgments and do them and you shall dwell in the land that i gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and i will be your god what a statement well that should just thrill you the God who spoke the universe into existence says, if you'll just do what I ask you, I will be your God. Now, if you're wondering what all of this has to do with wearing a helmet, we've arrived at the answer. The war we face is a spiritual one, and salvation means being drafted as a soldier in the war to the death. And the battleground is our mind, right here. That's why we need the helmet. So let's look at the wall in our mind. The change of heart at the time of salvation is a change to our inner core and it was really unanticipated civil warfare. And they just said, then we come out. I think that's a part of the change of heart at the time of salvation is a change to our inner core. That change must be supported through a transformation of how we think and how we interpret and value what we see and what we experience. To aid us in the struggle, we have been given, given the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 But salvation is experienced as two things, not one, two. 
Firstly, it's an event, a day, a time, and a place where we encounter Jesus Christ and, and undergo a new spiritual birth. That sets us on the road, but that's just the beginning. Secondly, it's a process of sanctification whereby we grow over time in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through exercising His mind and walking and warring in His power. 2 Peter 3.18 While in the battle, we're instructed to put on a spiritual helmet mentioned three times, by the way, Isaiah 59.17, Ephesians 6.17, and 1 Thessalonians 5.8 must be important. The helmet is for protection of the mind so that we will not conform the world's anti-God way of thinking. And this country that started out on a godly foundation has sold out to accepting the world's anti-God way of thinking because they neglected the helmet of salvation and many other things in the Christian life. We have sacrificed the greatest nation in the history of the human race to our laziness, our stupidity. And by the way, I'm not, when I say that, I'm not talking to the unsaved, I'm talking to Christians. The ones who knew better. If anyone's to blame for the state we're in, it's people like you and me who are half-hearted in their service to God. I'm not saying you are half-hearted. I'm saying Christians who knew better. Although there might be one half-hearted person here tonight, in which case I'm talking to you. <laughs> While in the battle, we're instructed to put on a spiritual helmet. I've been there, sorry. Uh, when Christians are unaware of the struggle being waged for human souls and do not guard their minds, they may become confused dispirited and infected, buffeted daily by ideas and values that are hostile to God and His rule, passively allowing this present, this present evil world to squeeze us into its mold, is not what God had in mind for us when He provided such a great salvation. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He did not think, I'm going to save these people so they can do their own thing for the rest of their lives. And mock me by the way they live. That was not His purpose. Christians have an inner light force that is independent to the darkness that rules this world, but we must protect and nurture that renewed life to maintain a God perspective on the world. Be careful about what you watch, what you read, and what you hear. Guard yourself. The helmet of salvation is synonymous with our new inner life. Oh, and guard your children. It is essential covering for the mind, nurtured by the word of God, by prayer, and by Christian fellowship, to open our eyes to God's ways and God's will, to keep us from becoming disorientated by spiritual warfare, to help us stand strong in the Lord, to encourage our obedience as we abandon our old thinking. So let's look at the rebellion, the rebellious mind and uh, the obedient mind in contrast. The rebellious mind, its nature, those who have been not born again by the Spirit of God have the devil as their father. That's the truth. It's out of the mouth of Jesus. If you're unsaved, I don't care what you think about yourself and who you think you're descended from, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, the, the adversary, is your spiritual father. And you know that just look around you at what's happening in this country. Before salvation, we were dead to the things of God. 
We were slaves to vain thinking. We were blinded by the God of this world with our minds corrupted and enemies of God in our, God in our minds. And you have those scriptures in your notes. Its motivation, that is the motivation of the rebellious mind, impurity and unbelief. Foolish pride and disobedience. That's symptomatic of the rebellious mind. And the story about King Saul, which I keep referencing, is particularly instructive as it illustrates the disastrous consequences of modifying God's commandments by our disobedient mind, our reasoning. I've got a better way of doing this. Sadly, Christians can be equally guilty of pride and disobedience that produces doubt and disappointment contrary to the word of God. And what's the fruit of the disobedient mind? Number one, alienation from God, like Samuel experienced. Number two, judgment by God, which is very painful. He eventually gives up on us because of our persistent sin and rebellion. And finally, death, the wages of sin. Well, let's leave that sorry picture behind and finish on a high note and look at the obedient mind. Its nature, those who have been born again by the Spirit of God have crucified the flesh, including the mind with its passions and desires. We are alive to God our Father who puts his laws into our minds and writes them on our hearts. Hebrews 8.10 We have the mind of Christ. We could spend a long time talking about that. We don't have time tonight. Uh, but maybe sometime in the future we can dig into that. And being the mind of Christ, it is a sound mind. It's a very sane mind. It's a very right mind. What's the motivation of this mind? Love of God. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Hallelujah. Galatians 4.6. Its motivation is simplicity and godly sincerity. And truth. And humility. And purity. And transformation. A rejection of conformity to the world's thinking in, in favor of conformity to God's perfect will. Romans 12, 1 and 2, a tried and true passage. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Not some strange thing he's asking you to do. Most reasonable thing is make your life a living sacrifice to God. What? I thought I was saved so I could have a good time. No, it's to be a living sacrifice. And if you think anything else, you're listening to the enemy. It's not comfortable, but I want to promise you it's very joyful. Amen. Peace and joy will be your portion. Right. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, that you may uh, uh, confirm what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The only way you're going to know perfect will is become a living sacrifice. Put yourself on that altar. Say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done, and mean it. <laughs> oh, how often Christians have prayed that and forgot that prayer five minutes later. What's the fruit of the obedient mind? Perfect peace. He shall keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on me. Philippians 4 7. Oh, let's turn there because we've got two minutes. I'm probably going to go five minutes over. Um, I'm looking forward to listening. By the way, this is my new 
preaching Bible, my wife brought me a prophetic counseling. Philippians 4 7. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, you can't explain it. The world can be falling down around your ears and your heart is full of peace. Everything is against you and your heart is full of joy. You cannot explain it, but it's real. Right. And it's wonderful. The peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Secondly, sanctification. I'm going to skip that one. You can read it for yourself. It makes uh, the fruit of the, the obedient mind is to become holier by the day. Not to do the things you used to do. And lastly, fruitfulness in the things of God. Wisdom and prudence, that little word there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, 8, you can read it for yourself. Prudence means the ability to govern yourself using your reason. Isn't that great? So you read this word, you say, that sounds like a good way to live, and then you live that way. That's prudence. The ability to govern yourself by the use of reason. So here's the challenge. Swimming downstream is easy. Christians are called to swim upstream. Against the powerful current of wrong thinking, destructive beliefs, immoral values, perverse activities that mark the world in which we live. The disgusting things happening in this country are shameful beyond belief and are bringing the judgment of God. When a Supreme Court judge cannot tell the difference between a, a, a cannot tell us what a woman is, we're done. That's how bad it is. Our challenge is to stand and declare definitively what a woman is and a man is and who God is and who we are and who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us. We're the only sane ones left on this planet. We can't do it on our own, however. But if we learn to depend on the inner life of the conquering Savior and begin to think as he thinks, victory is assured. Mm -hmm. To paraphrase Moses and Joshua in their farewell speeches to the Israelites, we are to choose each day, each moment of each day, whom we will serve. The gods of this present evil world, or, in the words of Paul to Timothy, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Therefore, Moses said, uh, Joshua said, choose wisely. Father, help us.